0: It is a warm and mild summer day in approximately the year 2000. I'm eight years old and I am attending summer camp at a local community center in a sleepy suburb of Seattle, Washington. This is drama camp. We are putting on a production of Alice in Wonderland and lunchtime has just ended. The counselors start to corral us, directing a gaggle of elementary aged children to gather our belongings and line up to head back to rehearsal. As we line up, I am talking to another camper And they ask me something about my family. About my father, perhaps. Oh, I have two moms, I reply. A steely-eyed little girl, eavesdropping on our conversation, perks up. She whips around to face me. Ew, she shrieks. You've got gay blood in you. Gay blood? Even at age eight, I knew this kid had some serious misunderstandings about the world. Did she not know how babies were made? Did she think I had been conceived through some alchemical blend of my mother's DNA? The world's first test tube baby made by two women. I should be on the news for this. Though I have no recollection of the aftermath of her comment, I may have said something like, um, that's not how it works. This moment remains indelibly burned in my psyche, and has for the past 23 years. I often mentally refer back to it as one of the first instances of homophobia toward my parents that I was consciously aware of. I was born in 1992 to my parents, Tracy and Denise. They were, as far as I can tell, the first same-sex couple to successfully adopt a child in the county where we lived. In the early 1990s, queer people who wished to legally parent a child or become parents at all, faced enormous social, political, logistical, and legal hurdles in order to do so. Because of this, I feel confident in saying that all children of queer people have one thing in common – our birth stories are unique. In the very few encounters I've had with other children of queers, I always have a burning desire to ask, How were you born? Even in this context, it's hard for me to know how to frame the story of my own birth. When I was young, this story was a funny anecdote, a quirk about me, that involved the weighing of a baby against stones, the fire department, and my mother catching me in her arms as I slipped from the womb. In adulthood, now knowing more about the intersecting tragedies, traumas, violences, and loss that preceded and followed my birth, it's harder to see it through a rosy lens. My birth mother, who I'll call Tina, was raising her small child at the time that she got pregnant with me. Tina was one of nine children and had a sister named Tracy. Tina's daughter's father had died from HIV-related complications, and at the time that she got pregnant with me, she was in a relationship with my birth father, who I'll call Artie. My understanding now is that Tina and Artie had a tumultuous and at times violent relationship. A few years after my birth, my birth parents having dated on and off since, Tina was charged with assaulting Artie. It's unclear whether she served jail time, but she received a suspended sentence for assaulting him. In adulthood, I have since discovered writing from my birth father, in which he describes the pain of my birth mother's right hook. All that is to say, Tina and Artie clearly had a complex relationship, and at the time my birth mother became pregnant, my birth father felt that he was not ready to be a parent, or so I've always been told, and so they separated. At the time that Tina got pregnant, Tracy and her partner Denise had been attempting to become parents the old-fashioned way, through a covert intermediary who connected them to an anonymous sperm donor. At the time, this person ran an underground network where she connected sperm donors to queer women who were seeking to get pregnant. For many queer women, mostly lesbian couples, this was a relatively safe way to go about having a baby since it was difficult to get pregnant through a sperm donor using a sperm bank or other more mainstream channels. Tracy and Denise's initial journey to become parents was bumpy, to say the least. They became pregnant, but my mother Tracy experienced a stillbirth fairly late in her pregnancy, an incalculable loss. Losing the baby for whom they had hoped and waited created a huge strain on my parents' relatively young relationship. In the midst of this loss, Tina getting pregnant with me was an unexpected beacon. Tina asked Tracy and Denise if they would be willing to adopt the baby she was now pregnant with, since she and Artie had split up, and Tina did not feel ready to raise another child on her own, or so I've been told. Tracy and Denise were, understandably, overjoyed, and began preparing in earnest for their baby's arrival. One huge component of this was the law, How are they going to wrangle the process of becoming their baby's legal parents? At the time, queer people's ability to become legal parents was unsettled. In the early 1990s, the gay liberation movement was in its relative infancy. Barely a quarter of a century had passed since Stonewall. Relatively few queer people were parenting openly. And if they were, it seems that it was largely in the context of queers who had married into heterosexual relationships, had children, and then come out later. For queers who wanted to raise children in queer relationships of their choosing, parenting was largely not an option.
1: I, I guess um, that's a really good question, because I don't think I ever thought that there was a barrier. Hmm. So I think in the beginning, it was just so new and you know, um, my feelings were so, you know, like in love and just exploratory, and I never really went to that next phase about, well, you know, if I stay with Tracy, I will have kids. Mm -hmm. I never really thought that was an obstacle. Yeah, I
2: think that we pretty much, when we got together, it was more that we understood that we were going to have a child, Mm And, you know, we just had to figure it out. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Were
2: there examples you were looking to of other people? Not really. I think we, you know, when we saw that show on TV about the woman that was doing the
1: artificial insemination. um, Yeah, that kind of opened things up for us. Mm -hmm. Whereas before, maybe we were thinking about adoption. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. and not having... Tartle, no, a bio yeah, kid yeah it's bio kid but then that that just opened up a door mm-hmm. that we pursued mm-hmm. and so the obstacle was removed mm-hmm. again mm-hmm. and then we pursued that and then we got pregnant we tracy <laughs> and then um you know and then tracy lost the baby and uh, another opportunity opened up for us, mm-hmm. so the obstacle was once again removed mm-hmm. for us. We were very lucky, I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. I for sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't recall ever feeling like, oh darn, mm-hmm. my like that. My future is not gonna not gonna the way have, I wanted it to. Yeah, yeah. Because I always wanted children, and. It, mm-hmm. think you did too, but Mm -hmm. you could speak for yourself. (laughs) But yeah, I always wanted children and and it was really exciting to be able to think that, well, we could have one. Mm -hmm. So that was the goal.
0: At the time, in the county in which my parents lived, the legal adoption process required that the biological parents of a baby voluntarily terminate their parental rights, which is common. The prospective adoptive parents would then petition for temporary custody of the baby, then subsequently petition the court to be deemed the baby's legal parents at a later date. So for the first eight months of my life, my parents were subjected to extremely thorough scrutiny from an organization called the Children's Home Society of Washington, a nonprofit social work organization that participated in the adoption process in Washington state. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, some same-sex couples had actually successfully petitioned the courts in western Washington to adopt children. But there was some hostility from certain judges and court commissioners, who are the legal gatekeepers to finalizing the adoption process. According to Washington State-based former court commissioner and former adoption attorney Eric Watness, some judges and personnel involved in the adoption process would actively place barriers in front of same-sex couples seeking to have their adoptions finalized. My parents were likely the first same-sex adoption in the county in which we lived, a suburb north of Seattle. Eric Watness, who was my parents' adoption attorney, confirmed that this was likely the case. A month after my birth, my biological parents' parental rights were terminated and Tracy and Denise were granted an order giving them temporary custody of me. I recently came across a letter that my parents' attorney sent them at the time. The commissioner stated that he is not homophobic and has no difficulty with entering the temporary custody order. It reads, He apparently had not been presented with such a situation in the past. I was happy to see he was so open about your adoption petition. Adoption findings and decrees are presented to a full judge in the presiding judge's courtroom, according to the local county rules. We will more than likely not have the same court commissioner for the finalization. In other words, we are not completely out of the woods until the decree is entered. However, I really don't expect any problem. From my parents' adoption file, I also have my hands on their home study a document written by an adoption specialist at the Children's Home Society of Washington that was submitted to the court in support of my parents' adoption proceeding. This document is an absolutely startling piece of personal history. It details my parents' family histories and dynamics, their personalities, their strengths, their challenges, and their hopes for parenthood. It also jarringly details my parents' romantic life in a way that astonished me. I wondered whether reading a third-party evaluation that goes into somewhat shockingly intimate detail astonished me because it's something I'd just rather not think about or because it's not something that would have happened if my parents were a heterosexual couple. For example, the study reads, Tracy and Denise had an ardent and at the same time well-considered courtship. Denise and Tracy describe themselves as the best of friends and lovers. Reading this document in 2023 takes my breath away. It's an unflinching analysis of my parents' fitness to be parents, but it practically glows with empathy and compassion. Tracy is seen as a woman with unique personal warmth and energy, combined with keen intelligence and sprightly humor. Her life has not been unmarked by significant difficulty and loss, And yet she remains open, enthusiastic, and optimistic of life's promise. In this, she demonstrates a splendid courage and resilience. Denise is seen as a person who reflects deeply and makes an outstanding effort in every area of her life. She confronts her dissatisfactions and challenges herself to ever more real and meaningful experience. She has an eager and inventive mind, which is rewarding for her and a delight to those who observe her. The ability Denise has found to give of herself in spite of her fears is a mark of how open-hearted and loving she really is. Finally, eight months after my birth, my parents went in front of a judge to finalize my adoption. My parents' attorney was nervous to go in front of this judge, who was known to be something of a hardliner. My moms told me a few years ago that as their case was called and they stood to ask the court to grant their petition— Their attorney turned to them and whispered that they could appeal a rejection of the adoption petition. But mercifully, the judge approved their petition, ordering a new birth certificate to be issued for me.
3: Okay, yep. Judge, I think it's John Wilson is his name. He was a tough, tough character. (laughs) Most of the judges in in Snohomish County were that way too. A few were more pliable and so on, but but um, Judge Wilson was a tough one. And as I recall, he's the judge. He had a he had a hearing involving a fellow who was a frequent flyer, uh, constitutionalist, um, representing himself in court, and um, um, John Judge Wilson. Had him in court, and he was there without a tie. Um, and this fellow was appearing, and Judge Wilson says, "Well, you may not be an attorney, but you have to present yourself as if you're an attorney because you're your own lawyer, and so you have to wear a tie." And the guy, this judge, this fella says, well, "I don't, I don't own a tie." And Judge Wilson says, "Go get a tie. You have to have one." And the guy, a guy, refused to do it. And John Wilson, Judge Wilson. Held him in contempt of court, court, and put him in jail. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so we're coming to present your adoption, and I'm this the same kind of thing. I this experience I had with uh, with uh, the uh, Kittitas County judge. I thought, oh, Judge Wilson's just not going to go for this, but we're going to do it anyway, and he did the exact same thing. We went into his chambers they didn't hold them in open court we went into his chambers sat down and made the presentation and he and i showed him all the paperwork that it was already here um and he was sweet as could be and signed the order and out the door we went i mean it was it was it was incredible to me that that happened
1: when eric found out who the judge was mm-hmm. up in Stahomish, mm-hmm. and he Already told us before we went into the courtroom what we were going to do as far as an appeal, because mm-hmm. he did not think this judge was going to sign off. Mm-hmm. And so when the judge, when well, first so of all, the judge, stressful.
2: we're in the courtroom, yeah. and um, the judge uh, asks if he can take us into his private chambers. So and Eric was with us. So scary. So you know we're and Eric had already said he's a super conservative judge. Mm-hmm. He put a man in jail for not wearing a tie, contempt. for contempt of court. You know I mean, so when he said let's move into our private my private chambers, we were like shaky yeah. really. Mm-hmm. And then we go back there and he just said his hello. Um, he said I see no reason why this can't happen mm-hmm. and
1: signed off on it. Mm-hmm. And we were just like. <gasps> Yay! (laughs) Took a picture of it. Exactly. Yeah.
0: In retrospect, my parents were incredibly lucky and had it comparatively easy. For many queers, even those who sought to become parents later on in the 1990s and early 2000s, as cultural attitudes in the United States toward queer people were becoming slightly less hostile, some queer people seeking to adopt children were forced to resort to committing fraud, such as by having one partner go through the legal adoption process while obscuring the fact that the partner was in a same-sex relationship. Others had to go through the adoption process after one partner had given birth to their child, rendering them in a tenuous legal position if the adoption were challenged or refused by the courts. And for many queer people, the process of adoption was financially out of the question, The process of adoption can cost thousands of dollars and take years, and, as my parents experienced, is absolutely not a guarantee that you will be allowed to become the legal parent of your child. A judge or other functionary ultimately decides you and your child's fate. For us, once the judge deemed my adoption finalized, we were off to the races. The gang of three. My early childhood was truly blissful, and I have exceedingly happy memories of growing up with my moms, our little pack. And genuinely, I was largely insulated from the swirling waters of homophobia in which we were all swimming. However, as I've sat down to sort through my early memories of the homophobia directed at my parents and at me, other memories have floated to the surface. Some that actually occurred even earlier than the gay blood incident. I am maybe seven years old and my mom Denise and I have stopped by a local gym to see if my parents can get a gym membership. My mom storms out after speaking with a rep. She is angry and her troubled face clouds my anxious little mind. They said we can't have a membership because we're not a family she spits. My heart twists. Even further back I may be five years old, and my parents and I are out on a nature hike, crossing over near a paved road. A car of men speeds by, screaming something and throwing something, a bottle maybe, toward my parents. My parents act as if nothing had happened, and we continued our walk. As a child, I was simply frightened. I had no idea why someone would have done this. But a few years ago, I wondered if it was more akin to a gay bashing, but I'll never know. Despite these blips, I truly felt insulated from the worst of it until I was 10 years old. Things really changed when, unplanned, my parents were forced to pick up their lives in Washington and relocate to a suburb north of LA after the company that my mom Denise worked for was bought out by a bigger one. To keep her job, we needed to move. My parents viewed it as an adventure. We'll live in California for a few years then end up back in Seattle eventually it's a blue state. What could happen? The cultural shock when we arrived in California was near instant. Within weeks of beginning the sixth grade, I started to hear my classmates utter things like, that's so gay. He's so gay. Why are you acting so gay? I genuinely had never heard someone use the word gay in a pejorative way before. My puzzlement at this quickly gave way to anxiety, over how my classmates and peers would perceive me and my parents. When growing up in the Seattle suburbs, my encounters with homophobia had been relatively few and far between. I hadn't developed a self-consciousness about having two moms. While I was the only kid in my school that I was aware of that had same-gender parents, my parents did have some gay people in their circles who had children, although the children of those people were much younger than me. This all shifted dramatically when we moved to California. Our little gang of three suddenly felt like an aberration. We stuck out like a sore thumb. Or rather, our community seemed to not know what to do with us. My moms would strike up a conversation with fellow parents at my basketball practice, only for them to say things like, Wow, I've never met a gay person before. Or worse, they'd ask my parents totally inappropriate and intrusive questions about their sex life, which I learned much later on. Very quickly after we moved to California, I no longer felt safe sharing with my friends that I had two moms. It had quickly become a source of discomfort, embarrassment, and shame. By a year into living in California, on the occasions that both my moms would come to pick me up for middle school, and a fellow student would ask which ones were my parents', I'd lie and say that it was my mom and my aunt who were picking me up. For trusted friends who would come over to my house, I would of course admit that yes, I had two moms. Mercifully, in most instances, kids didn't say anything overtly homophobic to my face. But we were absolutely steeped in the homophobia at every other turn. It was the early 2000s, and gay is literally being used as a synonym for bad, wrong, uncool, aberrant. There were some quiet allies, though, in those early years in California. One instance moves me deeply, even all these years later. When I was in the sixth grade, a fellow basketball parent, a big, gruff guy well over six feet tall who favored trucker hats and shredded t-shirts, was walking with my mom, Tracy, on the way to one of our basketball games. He must have asked her a question about who Denise was. Tracy fumbled a bit, hunting for the right word. She's, uh, she's my... This man interrupted. Life partner? Yes, Tracy responded. My life partner. At the time, my moms and I laughed about it. This unexpected man providing a sensitive and progressive word to describe my parents' partnership. But looking back now, my heart is so full toward this man and his small gesture of dignity toward my moms. By the time I reached high school, my skin had thickened a bit. My moms, over time, had built a loving community of friends and neighbors, who were almost universally respectful to my parents. I've reflected with my parents about how there was no gay bashing and very little explicit homophobia directed at my moms. It was more that the climate in which we existed was overtly homophobic. All of my close friends eventually, and many of my classmates and teachers, knew that I had two moms, At the same time, the fervent cultural debates about gay marriage and gay people's ability to raise children, taking place throughout the U.S., also permeated our community and my school. The year 2008 was an inflection point. Anti-gay marriage advocates in California had successfully petitioned to get a proposition on the ballot that would ban same-sex marriage. A bit of history here. As you may know... Before the U.S. Supreme Court issued its decision in Obergefell v. Hodges in 2015, the legality of gay marriage in the U.S. was something of a patchwork, with certain states having legalized gay marriage and others not. In May 2008, the California Supreme Court had ruled that a 2004 state initiative banning same-sex marriage was in fact violative of the California Constitution. This rendered same-sex marriage technically legal in California, Proposition 8, or Prop 8, as it came to be known, was a ballot measure designed to essentially do an end run around the California Supreme Court's ruling by repositioning a ban on same-sex marriage as an amendment to the California Constitution, rather than as an ordinary statute or law. In the lead-up to the 2008 elections, debates around gay marriage permeated my universe— Rigorous debates about the validity of gay marriage somehow also wrapped up debates about the legitimacy of gay people's right or fitness to parent children. I wrote an op-ed in my public high school newspaper defending gay people's right to have children, in fact, writing passionately about the fact that queer people were just as capable of raising children successfully as straight people. I recall that someone wrote the con article as a counterbalance to my piece, and I so desperately wished I had saved a paper copy of that tender, earnest writing. As many queer people know intuitively, the cultural debates around the validity of gay marriage were, in almost every way, a proxy for debates about the inherent dignity of queer people. As a wise law school colleague of mine said a few years ago, Legal dignity often precedes interpersonal dignity. This felt especially true in the context of the gay marriage debates. My peers' rabid support of this idiotic ballot measure felt like a personal attack on my family and our right to exist. While I, of course, don't have data on the proportion of people in our LA suburb that supported the ballot measure, Our neighborhoods were absolutely saturated with the blue and yellow Yes on Prop 8 lawn signs, which were branded with a clumsy stick figure representation of a happy heterosexual family. The memory that sticks out most sharply for me at this time is one of the few moments I have seen my mother Tracy cry out of pain or sadness. In the months leading up to the November election that year, I begged my mother to drive me to the various Prop aid protests occurring on street corners in our sleepy suburb. It is mid-afternoon, school is out, and Tracy has agreed to drive me to a protest. As we approach a red light, I see out of the corner of my eye another protest in front of a local Catholic church, different from the one I'm headed to, with scores of blue and yellow posters and lots of eager, happy young people chanting and waving their hateful signs. My mother slows to a stop, and I roll down the window. A smiling young man waves his sign toward us while we shout at him. The actual words we used escape me. But I recall him responding with something like, I support love. There was something about love in there. I recall burning with rage and a feeling of helplessness at the right's ability to twist the language of love in this horrible, horrible way. The light mercifully turns green, and we speed away. I begin to cry. It's just too much. These hateful people. My peers. Kids I go to high school with. Standing on a street corner and gleefully waving signs that proclaim that they don't see queer people as having the same rights as straight people. In hindsight, it does feel almost quaint. In a contemporary era where conservatives are actively murdering queer and trans people and enacting violence against them for being supposed pedophiles and merely for existing. But in the moment, at that time in 2008... It felt like a profound pain and a psychic violence against my family to see these people chanting in support of this horrible ballot measure. My mom turns to me and her face now is streaming with tears. Being the child of queer people places us in an inherently unique position. We do not get the experience, for the most part, of the traditional normative American family, constructed in our minds as a heterosexual mother and a father who are married to each other and raise their own biological children. I will never know what it is like to have a father. I can only speculate. And I will never know what it is like to be raised by one's biological mother or father or parent. So many people seek to frame queer families like mine as operating from an inherent position of loss or absence. But I guess I don't see it that way even though I have struggled, and at times enormously, through the experience of being raised in a queer family. Through these challenges, though, I've always felt profoundly special. My family is profoundly special because of the way in which we came together. My parents had to work very, very hard to become parents, and to become my parents in particular. And in the process, they were lucky to have other incredibly loving and supportive people, including their many gay friends, to cheer them on. Something I hadn't considered much before starting this project is the role that straight people had in my parents' journey to become my parents. At every turn throughout their journey to become my parents, various straight people operated in my parents' path, in turn as gatekeepers, as obstacles, as allies, as participants, as confidants, and as advocates for them. It's an inherent frustration for me that straight people held a lot of the power over my moms in their journey to become parents. From the very origin of my parents' adoption of me, my accidental conception, through the legal system they had to navigate to become my parents, my parents had to contend with and work alongside straight people in order to get what they wanted. In one sense, I have immense gratitude toward the straight people who were willing to advocate for my parents, like their extraordinary adoption attorney, or the compassionate social worker who did their home study, or even those who showed them the bare minimum of human decency, like the county commissioner who granted my parents temporary custody of me before I was formally adopted. Something that keeps showing up for me, and that pushes back against this flattened idea I have that my parents were operating in this violently hostile homophobic environment, are the examples of people who were willing to open doors for my parents, even if they hadn't encountered a situation like theirs before. Not to give too much credit to the gatekeeping straight people with whom my parents were forced to contend, but just to note that there were people who were willing to go to bat for them. And for them, I have appreciation. My mom Tracy recently dug up a thick blue folder from her files. It reads, in all caps, quote, how to adopt for gay-slash-lesbian people, unquote. It contains mainstream media articles on same-sex parents, but also more complex sociological readings on relinquishment, the impact of child surrender on birth fathers, and raising adopted children, among other topics. I am desperately curious to know who compiled this guide. It came from the child welfare agency that conducted my parents' home study. It's made me think a lot about the queer couples who came before my parents and had children. My parents were among the brave, groundbreaking queer people at the time they adopted me who were able to adopt a child. And I'm immensely curious about other queer folks who struck out on their own to make a family. In this podcast, I'll be investigating the experiences of the children of same-sex parents, the history of adoption by same-sex parents in Western Washington, and sharing my own experiences as the first adopted child to same-sex parents in Snohomish County in the early 1990s. During this exploration, I'll speak with a lot of different people, fellow children of gays and lesbians, attorneys and judges who participated in and advocated for same-sex parents in the 1990s and 2000s, and my own family, among many others. While I can only speak from my own experience, I hope to honor and elevate the experiences of fellow children of queers and honor my beloved community in the process. One thing that I certainly know is that my parents' experiences as white, cis, gender-conforming queer women informed their ability to navigate the legal system, even as they faced homophobia and lesbophobia in the process. For black and brown queer people, disabled queer people, visibly gender nonconforming queer people, and trans and non-binary queer people, the journey to become a legal parent is even more acutely perilous because of anti-blackness, white supremacy, ableism, transphobia, transmisogyny, and queerphobia. Throughout the process of creating and researching this project, I've been struck by the whiteness of the landscape. My limited community of fellow children of queers are almost all white, or have at least one white parent. This speaks to the role that white supremacy plays in determining who has access to resources, and who is denied that access. My hope is that as you listen to this podcast, you'll think about the ways in which you conceptualize family, and how we might expand our cultural conceptions of what makes a family. I'm grateful for everyone listening to this little slice of my life, the life of my moms, and the experiences of my community and extended family in the process. Until next time.